This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Claire G. Coleman, welcome to Better Reading. Good to be here. Claire has, she's here in person and I love having people in person. Uh, It's changed my life post-COVID and she's flown in from Melbourne, but not just to see me, I've been told. I I would fly in just to see you anyway, but probably my publicist wouldn't pay for, probably she wouldn't pay for it then. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) So Claire, and I'm going to pronounce this properly, is Anunga, is that right? Nunga. Nunga is a Noongar writer from Western Australia who is now based in Nam in Melbourne. Is that right? That's correct. I've yeah. been based in Nam a little longer than I've been a writer. It's just people... Western Australia seems desperate to claim me. Yeah, but I can see why. <laughs> you can understand that. Yeah, okay. Uh, look, we'll talk about that in a minute because that would be your formative years, wouldn't they? Well, yeah, and also um, uh, being Noongar, I'm, I'm Indigenous to Western Australia. So that will always be, no matter what I want to be home... Well, Australia will always be home of sorts. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I talk about that. I mean, I was born in Australia, but my parents are Lebanese. Yeah. And same kind of thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, she wrote a critically acclaimed book, Terra Nullius, while travelling around Australia in a camper van. She also wrote the novel The Old Lie and the non-fiction book Lies, Damned Lies. Claire is now releasing her third book. It's called Enclave. It explores the future of surveillance, disruption and segregation that echoes the horrors of a colonial past. Okay, Claire, let's talk about, and I know you're going to be the kind of writer that will pull me up on anything I get wrong. Um, well, not wrong because, I'm, you know, we're learning and we're always learning. But I've got to say in the last couple of months I have felt that much happier knowing that there are changes happening in this country that are recognising more and more Aboriginal people and the fact that they are the original owners of this land. Yeah, things things are improving. That doesn't mean they can't get worse again. And that's a yes. And that's that's the thing we always have to face. So. Yes. And there's that saying, you know, that saying things things get worse before they get better, or, or it's always darkest just before dawn. Yeah. And of course, it's a well-known phenomenon in our society that when the people who like oppressing others feel like they're losing power, yes, they Why briefly is get that? worse. But that's across all humans, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd say that the people who I won't say they want to make the world worse because I don't think they are. Mm. They think they're making the world better, but they're making mm. it better for themselves. The people who's who are determined to improve the life for themselves and their kind, for only for their in group, they will get more probably get more and more aggressive as things get more equal across this nation. And that's that's the pattern that happens. And mm. we may have another spasm of of bad stuff. 
And I wouldn't be at all surprised if we have a rise of fascism somewhere in the world at some time in the near future. So there's all these things are always there. Mm. I, I just want to talk about the recent government and I'm not talking politics here, I'm just talking attitude mm-hmm. and culture. And the first time that they spoke at a media conference, the Aboriginal flag was behind Anthony Albanese. And for me, what was so important, and Torres Strait Islanders, what was so important about that was that it wasn't announced. It was a given. This is our new world, people. This is how the world should be. The funny thing is, um, since 1994, Flag Protocol has stated that it's acceptable to put all th- those three flags in a, in a row behind any government official doing any business Absolutely. since 1994. So there was a bit of a furor about people saying, oh, the Australian flag should be in the middle. But according to the government's own protocol, the Australian flag goes on the to the, goes to the right of the person speaking to their right. So, is that it was actually correct? The order in which they were done was correct, which puts the Aboriginal flag almost always behind the person speaking. But that's the protocol from the Flag Act of 1994. So, and why not? And why not? They're, they're officially flags of Australia. They have been for nearly 30 years. Mm. So it's, it's taken a very long time before... And also, too, I just... And, and this will be my last point on flags, but I do think they have more meaning that we give them credit for. I think it is definitely a very strong... Because I have noticed my emotions. I've got to tell you, every time I see it used properly, it 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 makes me feel better about the country. Well, people always say that things like the flag or... Australia Day, those things are only symbols. Yeah, they're not. But what they forget is that, yeah, they're they're definitely symbols, but what they forget is that symbols are important because they're what we use to define who we think we are. Mm. The symbols we put out in society, they tell everyone else not who we are but who we think we are, and that's important. Mm. So they're symbols, sure, but there's no such thing as just a symbol because symbols Mm. are more powerful than anything Mm. I, again, have been heartened recently when we finally decided, and this should have been a no-brainer years and years and years ago, that it's going on the Harbour Bridge. Do you know, I remember as a young person wondering why it wasn't there. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's weird. It is strange. And, well, they said that they, they, it's going to have to spend millions of dollars to put it permanently on the Harbour Bridge. They put it temporarily there all the time, yeah. which means that there's a flagpole for it. Oh. So why do they need to spend really. millions of dollars? I can't, oh, I can't oh, that one And out. also, I don't think cost is, comes into it anyway. I don't no. want to, that conversation. That's like, you know, that's just like the US conversation with gun safety is it, the door was opened. That's distracting from the real problem, yeah. which is you've got too many guns, not that the school door was open. And then that's right. And yeah. and of course they they do that they do that crazy crazy thing where they say, oh, but it's the constitution can't be changed. <laughs> and but then you think then as people keep pointing out, the right to bear arms is in the Second Amendment. Amendment in and in fact says in the very words that the constitution was changed. So it's they, of course they can change it. It's mind-boggling to me that you know. I mean, even very recently in New York, that everybody has um, it's it's a legal right to carry a gun outdoors. I mean, this is where the problem lies. You know, mm-hmm. your freedom is not my freedom. If you've got a gun, that's not my freedom. And the, <laughs> anyway, you know, and that's the thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's it, like it's, it's that sort of freedom to bear arms. It kind of relates to the yeah. the. Um, 
um, a lot of the so-called right-wing freedoms. Because the, the freedom to oppress takes away the freedom to live without oppression from someone else. So the freedom to bear arms takes away everyone else's freedom to not be faced by an idiot with a gun. Mm, exactly. Now, I want to talk about our country country because we've made um, many, many mistakes here. Before I do that, though, I want to know how you came to us as a writer. So talk to me about, we were talking about Western Australia, just I think just before we started recording, mm-hmm. and we're talking about, you know, the formative years and growing up and what makes us who we are. And I touched on the point that, you know, I was born here, but my parents are Lebanese and they immigrated in the 50s and they have really, really uh, set the path of my life. You know, it's how I'm made. It's who I am. Well, the interesting thing um, about culture is that we are the kind of the sum of a lot of stories. Each of us is bring, we bring together our, the lives of our ancestors, their prejudices and their upbringing what we've learned ourselves. So yep. it, we are we are all very, very complicated people. Mm-hmm. Now, in my ancestral country, there was a massacre in 18, about 1890. And after that massacre, my people dispersed and never returned to country. When in 2015, which is my 41st birthday, so letting everyone know my age, kind of, because it doesn't really matter. I don't, I don't mind that I'm 48 years old, to be, I'll be honest. Hey, listen. <laughs> <laughs> it You're doesn't young. Me. It doesn't bother me that I'm, well, people think I'm getting getting on, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't Can really I just me. tell you, Claire? Remember this: when you turn fifty, people. I had a really big party, a really big party. I had it in the park, and oh. you know, I had a lot of people, and pe- so many people at that party came up to me and said, "I've never seen anyone so happy to turn 50. And I said, "No, no, I'm so happy to still be here yeah. at fifty because I lost a friend at forty nine. That's that's the thing. The um, there's that saying that if you think if you don't want to grow old, just think of the alternative. Mm. Um, exactly. But then, so in on my forty first birthday in two thousand fifteen, I was I returned to my ancestral country, um, with my parents. Where was that? That was in um, Ravensthorpe, WA, which is the south coast, right. um, east of Albany. If you know WA, it's quite remote um, by the coastal standards. There's a museum there, and at the museum. There's a lot of family history of my family and I spoke, spoke to them there and we uncovered history and I got copies of the documents they had for my, for my family archives because we we'd never seen any of this stuff. Yeah. And then they told me about a memorial to the massacre that was being built um, 20 kilometres out of town because that's where the massacre happened. And so, and so they invited me to the opening event for that massacre, They're having a big, um, like pulling off the things off the signs and showing everyone around and talking about it. And so I, I had to be somewhere else, so I came back for that. It was about three weeks after I was in, in the town. And when I was there, I heard the story of the massacre for the first time properly. I, I knew of the massacre, and all I knew was that it was a massacre of um, Noongar people that around there... And I hadn't always known I was Noongar, so never, I'd never put two and two together... Yeah. And I put to get two and two together and I realised during that opening with the speeches from people who um, are distant family members or people who claim my family, they were telling the stories of the, of the, of the event and it, I abruptly realised that this story, this massacre, isn't just a story, isn't a distant thing. It's right in the middle of my family history. It's... My and my Noongar ancestors would have lost close relatives 
in that massacre. They survived, but they would have lost close relatives. Of course. And I realised that for the first time that um, massacres were a were just a, a thing that were just stories. They were people's lives. Of course, I should have known that, and I suppose deep down I did know that. But I realised what um, what this meant, and I realised that um, people don't um, understand that they're people's lives. People don't understand that it's not that long ago. Um, 1890s isn't that long ago. My great-great-grandmother would have been alive at that time. So I came up with the idea for what was to become Terminalius on the spot on that day. The whole story kind of unfolded in my head, almost intact. Okay, I want to know, had you been writing by that? I'd been writing poetry before that, but I'd never been published. So I had this um, sudden idea... And I just sat down and wrote it. And I was writing. And you've never written long form? Never, ever, ever, ever. And that story just came out? It just came out. It forced itself out through me. So I I wrote that story, and then, I know, six months after I started, I entered it in an unpublished manuscript prize, which I won the black and white prize, that was. And from then, it just kind of exploded. I've just been reading my third novel, which is my fourth book. It's the third book I've written, fourth book to come out. It's very confusing because they come out in the, they've come out in different order where they're written in. But yeah, so it's kind of this thing of I didn't know what I was doing. I just had to tell until the you stories. were doing it. Yeah, you, yeah. No, that's. I think that's quite. I think that's more common than most people admit to. The writers not knowing what they're doing until they do it. Yeah, I agree. I want to go back to growing up. I want to go back to, you know, primary school, to community, mm-hmm. to what forms Claire who she is now. And that is, identity is really important to me because I think that that, and you'll agree with this, it defines who we are as a person and how we behave as a person, mm-hmm. as an adult. Talk to me about that because a young Lebanese person growing in Lebanese Australian person, there's lots of paths that I could have taken. There's lots of paths that you could have taken. Absolutely. Well, I grew up in um, a forestry settlement in WA. I don't even Lebanese. know what that is. In in WA, um, all forestry was was isn't now I don't think, but it all was owned, um, controlled by yep. the state government. By the Department of the For- Department of Forestries, which later became the Department of Conservation Land Management. So, state government owns, controls, thousands of acres of of forest for logging. Yeah. And there's a pine plantation not far out of Perth, mm-hmm. and in there there was, um, fourteen I think it was fourteen houses. Yeah. And an office. Yeah. And every man in the in the every every man who lived in that settlement of fourteen houses worked in forestries. Wow. And so it was all Your the forestry father. men from that area and their families. So my dad my dad worked as a forestry's overseer for most of my life. He was, I think he I think he was already an overseer by the time I was born actually. And then he might not have been, but I always remember my dad being the overseer, the um hit team yeah. leader of yeah. um for the forestries guys. And he was a fire, state forestry firefighter. Yeah, all my life, and um, so I grew up there with about you know. A and bunch where of did kids. he meet your mum? Was she there as well? No, mum. Weirdly, my mum and dad met in a town in the southwest of WA. I'm not sure which town. I've forgotten which town it was. Right. But, but what does stick in my mind is that between 
um, Hopetown and Ravensthorpe. So between these two, this area that was basically my ancestral country, between these two towns, there's a place called Kundip. In between these two towns, it's, it's a nothing now, it used to, but it used, to be, it used to be a town there. Yeah. And my dad grew, um, grew up partially in that little township there that's no longer there. Yeah. And my mum grew up 10 years later in the mine across the road. Oh, so they, wow. they miss each other by like 10 years. Wow. But they were in the same, they were like, they grew up in the same area 10 years apart in age. And so that's that's how my parents met. My my dad's normally my mum's um, Anglo-Australian. Yeah, so I grew, I grew up in this forestry's place. With siblings? With a, an older brother and a younger sister. Yeah. And then when I was 10, they shut down forestry's there, sold the land for housing. And then at one stage, a silica mine for the um, chip grade silicon, as in silicon chips right. mining okay. in the area. And then they put, then it was housing and we moved to the, as it was Perth. And what yeah. was it like growing up with mixed parents? Was that something that you noticed as a child well, the, or the, it was just to your family it, unit? It was just who my family were. But yeah. also um, we didn't know my family were Noongar at the time as well. My dad's obviously um, dark. Yeah. Um, and of course, he was darker when he was younger because he caught more sun. Yes, of and, course. But um, we thought my dad thought he was Fijian all his life, until wow, um, until like I don't know, I can't remember how many years ago, but some years ago. Wow, how did he deal with that in terms of identity? Well, my dad's my dad's identity. Um, it was has always been a bit of a complicated thing. So is mine. We we were growing up with this idea of an, a Fijian identity, yeah. But no kind of ethnic or cultural Fijian yes um, aspects of our lives because we we're not we're not Fijian. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise, surprise. It, it makes sense when you think about it. But we grew up, and I I, I met a um, Fijian guy. I had a Fijian friend in my early twenties, nineteen, twenty, twenty one age, and we had nothing. No cultural identity in common. Um, and so I suppose in a way it wasn't like finding out where Noongar wasn't losing an identity and picking up another one. It was more like finally finding our place in the world, finding um, my family's jigsaw piece where it fit in the map of people around us. Yeah. That's a good way time. of describing it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it was like there's something missing and something was there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What did it do for you, finding that out? Well, it, it gave me a, a way to understand 
myself to a, to an extent. It, it gave me a a position in the world. And later on, I've kind of been working to decolonize my 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 mind and and learning about how Aboriginal thinking about identity or about people about who um personal identity, not cultural identity, but personal yeah. identity is different to um, white identity. And one thing that's that is common common across almost all Indigenous people is this idea that your most important thing about you is where you fit in a, the network of everyone else. Like if you think yeah. of all, all all people culturally as a web, like your position on the web is more is important. That you know, you know who your all your connections are. And from that context, um, it makes sense to me because. When I when my family identity was finally uncovered, I realised where I fit in the web of Australia, and I knew where my connections were. And we found relatives we didn't know existed. Wow! And we still are. We're still uncovering relatives. My Noongar family is is a fairly well known bloodline because um, most people don't know this, but there's some like thirty thousand Noongar people in in WA. Wow. And we're all descended from about 288 ancestors mm. who survived the initial um, violence. Mm. So people trace back to their what's called the apical ancestor, the the last mm. full-blood Aboriginal ancestor, and which is what I did. And, of course, my apical ancestor is relatively well-known. And every now and then um, myself or one of the other kind of Relatively well-known people from that and from that family um, gets contacted by a random person mm. who says, um, "I'm your family. I don't know how. Don't know what to do about mm. recovering identity." I'm uncle. I'm auntie. So you went to school. Did you go to high school? Did mm. you? I, I want to know the paths to what made you a writer. Okay, I'll, I'll try. I'll try. I'll give you a, a potter's summary because my life is yeah. My forty-eight years of life have been rather complicated. But that's okay. I like complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, gi- I'll give you a potter's summary. Okay. I, I, I went to high school. I went to primary school in firstly in the Swan Valley in WA, yes. the Wiley region, and then yes. um, the eastern suburbs in a relatively yes. rough. Bogany sort of area. Mm-hmm. I, I, I went to high school. Were you a good kid, a good school kid? Like, were you Relatively? studious? No. Were you a reader? Yes, I was a reader. I loved reading. I, 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 wait, loved I always story. loved stories. Yeah. But I wasn't. I wasn't a um, dedicated or determined student. Mm. I, as a student in high school, I reckon um, I would not be far off the mark if I said that I was constantly accused of doing the bare minimum to pass at all times. Mm-hmm. Which, <laughs> I, I don't think I was far from that. No, <laughs> and, and when I finished high school, and it was a really rough school, yeah, one of the roughest in the country. Wow. How do you survive that? Survive I, don't, I, I don't know. Do I don't know how I survived remember, it. Do you remember that it, did you like going? Did you find it challenging? I hated school. Yeah, I, re- I hated yeah. school and I hated... Because it's um, hard enough mm. as is then to add the rough element or yes, to add right. this element. To, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I was really delighted to get out of school, but I did go to university. Yeah. So studied, you did well enough. I did well enough, barely. Yeah. Uh, and I studied biology. Yeah. And Wow. I didn't so you're fi- good at science. I was good at science, yeah. I didn't finish that degree. Yeah, that's okay. I you had can a, decide you didn't a bit like of a, it. a bit of a breakdown. Oh, did you? A little bit, little one. Yeah. I had bigger ones later, but they had a little one then. Right. Um, and, and what was the breakdown around? It's like, this is just, not for me or well, this yeah, is... Yeah, that partially that, partially just stuff in general. Yeah. I think a lot of people are troubled. And I've, I've never been, I've never had 
I've never been famously stable. Let's put it this way. Yeah. Um, I'm. I'm a lot more stable. <laughs> Is there anybody famously stable? <laughs> I don't know. I want um, to meet them. Bring I, them I, in. I, I, I don't look. If you want to meet fam- if you want to meet famously stable people, you're in the wrong line of work talking to authors. Seriously. <laughs> Um, <laughs> because no, look, I guess I've gone through mental health issues, but yeah. Um, then I kind of I staggered around a bit for a while, yeah. um, doing this and that and doing nothing in particular. Do you think? And obviously, you know, you'll tell me either way. But do you think your mental health issues were around identity? Possibly belonging. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. Um, and other things. It was just a mess. I was a yeah, mess. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, so then I, I yeah, I stayed. I, I wobbled around a bit. Did nothing in particular. After uni, after you dropped out of uni. Yeah, after I dropped out of uni. Okay. So I, you're I, a I bit went, older I then. Forest for, for blockade. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. All those sort of thing. And then in 2001, I went back to university. Yeah. Um, when I was ooh, 26, 20. Yeah. Seven. I went back to university um, after like many years away. Mm-hmm. And what made you go back? I was feeling a bit more stable, and I thought, and I felt like I needed a decent yeah. job, a decent career. Yeah. Um, I finished that. Yeah, I finished that degree. Yeah. Um, you and still I got, thought biology was for you? No, I didn't do biology. <laughs> I did oh. computer science. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I did a computer science degree, and I got an honours. <gasps> Um, yeah, and... Show off. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've finished my honours probably about three months after the IT collapse uh, in yeah, the, the 2000s. Dot com. The dot-com yeah. collapse, which yeah. is when, of course, yeah. um, everyone went from being able to get any job they wanted to the no unemployment job. rate for computer science graduates being like 35%. Your timing was shit. My timing was bloody terrible. Yeah. So then I um, wandered around a bit. I became a cook. Oh, wow. Um, this what, and in that. restaurants? Yeah. 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 That's hard work. Yeah, it was hard work. Really I, I stopped I stopped because I decided I really don't like chefs. Yeah. Awful no. culture. No, awful people. Especially Not all chefs there. are awful people, but no. a lot of chefs are awful but, people. No, I'm saying that because I worked in kitchens, not yeah. as a chef. I loved cooking and naively thought I wanted to work in a kitchen at one point because I you loved it. You found better, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I found I it way too. much better. So, but yeah. also the culture of the kitchen, the commercial kitchen is terrible and that's what mm. leads to bad chef behaviour. I was, I don't know what I was doing at this place and the chef threw a knife at the guy that was washing the dishes and I went up to him and I said, I think you should call the police. And they're like, what? No, it's a, it's a kitchen. What do you mean? Yeah, I know. But it, it's a knife. Mm. Yeah. I know. Anyway, yeah. So I did that for a while. Um, Were you a good cook? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I was neither disciplined enough to be a line, a, um, a line, line chef to work the line. No, I was neither disciplined enough to work the line, nor creative enough to be a head chef. Right, yeah. And I, I was just sitting in that position where I was, I was never going to make it further than just kind of being not much more than the kind of yep. the commie chef or the, um, or the pantry chef and chopping onions forever. Um, and I um, had, and then my mental health issues reared the ugly head again. Well, do you think that would have been the, the nature of, well, the the, the culture in, in commercial kitchens actually, or actually, the, the hours? Actually, in between the IT collapse and, and the chefing, also got, I got um, bullied at work in an IT workplace and um, had another little mini, mini mental collapse. And then I got to cooking later and then had another mental breakdown. And then I wandered around for a bit while, and I was homeless. I've been homeless multiple times for the last, over the last... Talk to me about that. How does that happen? 
How does it happen? It happens. It, it is the easiest thing in the world to happen. Mm. Anyone mm. randomly could end up homeless. Mm. It's you'd be surprised how easily it happens. Mm. The only people who can't end up homeless um, are people who own a house mm. um, and who are single and own a house. Mm. Because if they're in a couple and own a house, there's always a chance they could um, have a fight with a partner and mm. leave and find out that the that they don't actually own the. Mm. A share of the house, and they end up not ha- not with the house. So there's almost anyone can end up homeless. Mm. I saw it in San Francisco. I went to San Francisco this year. It's like an epidemic over there. Mm. You know, it is here too. There's yeah, um, there's thousands of people homeless in Australia, yeah. and it's actually an um, it's an epidemic that mostly hits women over forty now. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's it's a, it's so it's because easy. the whole the whole system, the whole financial system was designed for men to work and men to save money and men were better mm. paid and you know so that's what we're kind of still living off that legacy. And, and a lot of women are, are discovering also that the you know the husband might say that they told yeah. the wife to raise the kids and then yeah. he they reach a certain position in a relationship he goes, no, I don't want you around anymore, but he's got the house in his name and he's got a job and the wife's never worked. And the worked, super and everything And she's else. never worked. Yeah. Um, so the first time you became homeless, talk to me about that experience. Where were you? What city? It was in, in Melbourne. Cold. Yep. Yeah, a little bit. The cold isn't really that much of a problem. Um, a good blanket will fix that. So I was um, sleeping in the streets in Melbourne. It was a bit, a bit rough. That was the, the the worst. The worst homelessness was between my IT degree and getting bullied at work and losing my job and then losing my house because yeah. I couldn't pay my rent. Yeah. Just after that, I uh, I ended up like sleeping on the streets in Melbourne, and that's it was from that that I got the cooking work, and I got yeah. um, I managed to I did that for a few years, and um, but then I was doing things like um, I went to. A, a coastal town. I'm not going to name it because I don't want to. Yeah. But I went to a coastal town, got work there, and there was nowhere available to rent, so I ended up living in the caravan park. Right. And then when that work collapsed, I end up not in the caravan park anymore because I couldn't afford to pay it, so I ended up back on the streets again. Mm. Um, so the only thing really I could do after homelessness was my parents came to visit one day and left without the caravan on purpose. So I got a car I tried to, to tow the caravan and that gave me something to be in. So um, if you're going to be homeless, any advice people out there who can pull it off, not anyone, everyone can, but a really good trick when you're homeless is to just use that time to go travelling. <laughs> I, I, I really didn't think you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's true because yeah. um, if you think about the um, a middle class grey nomad Class. There's a class of, of yes. old people who yes. travel in, in caravans. Yeah. They're all homeless. Yes, they are. And no, no one, no, they don't get arrested for homelessness or bothered or anything like that. Yeah. So if you travel with them, like sleep so in a car. So if you're in a caravan, if you have a caravan, are you considered homeless? Does the government see you as homeless? Oh, uh, they do, yeah. Um, you can, oh. they, you're within homeless statistics. Uh, oh, wow. I didn't so, know that. Uh, yeah. Um, and also, you're also counted within homeless statistics if you're, um, sleeping in a in uh, on like a couch or something. If you don't have your own stable Address. room, yeah, in a place you're homeless. So if you, even if you've got oh. your dress somewhere, if you don't have a room there, like you're sleeping on the, in the lounge room or the couch or something, you're homeless. So, hmm. so yeah, I went travelling, and that's it was when I was travelling and still technically homeless that I started writing. Hmm. 
So homelessness has always been part of my writing. Okay. So when you published um, your first book, what did that feel like then? That Did that give you, oh gosh, I think I'm a writer now? Did that give you a purpose, a sense of purpose, a sense of identity? Okay, I'm onto something that I like to do. Well, it's a case it's of... It's not a get-rich-quick yeah. fix, oh, that's no, of course for sure. Not. But the funny <laughs> thing, the funny thing is, um, yeah. because I've never been able to hold down a career long enough to advance in that career, yeah. um, writing has been... The, the years I've been a writer have been my highest earning years yeah, wow. in my life. I'm not earning a lot. I mean, no, no, no writers no, no. earn a lot. No, I know that. I think the average, there was a t- statistic recently. 12,500. 12,500. That's what I was going to say. I a do, year. I do significantly better than that. Right. Great. But I also work yeah. significantly harder than a lot of people. I'm not saying I work harder than everybody. Yeah. But I, I work really hard. I, yeah. I've never worked so hard in my life yeah. as, I, as I do when I'm writing. Um, and I wouldn't, certainly if I didn't love it, I wouldn't work as hard as I do for the amount of money I earn, which yeah. is, if I was, if it was any other job working the hours I worked, I'd be loaded. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree with you totally. Um, Claire, um, just tell me a little bit about um, Enclave. Um, sure. And what's next? Well, um, Enclave, um, it's a near future speculative fiction novel. It's about a culture that has intentionally isolated itself uh, Anglo-Australian, basically, isolate themselves um, away from everyone who is not like middle class, white, straight, and <laughs> and I suppose um, everything that's wrong with that sort of thinking. Mm. I've always I've always thought that um, the people um, a world without people like me in it would be really boring. <laughs> and, Tell me about it. Um, <laughs> I mean. There's all these there's all these people out there who who think they want a safe, secure world that's all people like them. Yeah. But I don't I don't think that's true at all. I think they only think they want it. And I suppose I wanted to see when I was writing it, I wanted to see what would happen if they got what they wanted. I suppose that, that's basically what Enclave is. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, what are you what are you working on now? I've received recently a. Australia Council for the Arts funding to Congrats. research and draft a book on um, Aboriginal visual art. Oh, wow. Lovely. Because that's my uh, – writing about Aboriginal visual art is my side hustle. Oh, wow. I don't know if you call it a side hustle. I'm, you know, the, I'm one of the few writers making an okay living from writing in Australia. Yeah. With, but my books aren't big enough to achieve that. My books are – they do okay. They do quite well, but they're yeah. not big enough to be to live on. Yeah. And I don't know if we can call it a side hustle when every writer who's doing okay at writing is always – has multiple feelers of, of hustles within the writing world. Yeah, writing opinion pieces. And, and, and one of mine is writing about visual arts. Yeah. So I'm researching a book about visual arts. Fantastic. So that's my next thing. Because, I mean, I have to do it now because Australia Council is paying for it. So I better work on it. <laughs> you better start. Claire G. Colvin, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I have enjoyed our conversation very much. I have too. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. 
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.